All right, our scripture reading this morning is Acts 4, 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if, you, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no, one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw that the saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of the ho your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Good morning, everyone. Well, I think we all love a story about a conflict of great powers. I uh, looked it up the other day and discovered that the Marvel movie franchise is the highest grossing movie franchise in the history of the world, 
uh, and uh, outgrosses the next, the next highest by $6 billion. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is everybody likes a, a clash of powers, a clash of the titans. Um, we, we like stories uh, when great powers come in conflict with each other. We see this in sports, the Super Bowl, the World Series, March Madness, the Olympics. Um, we see it in our entertainment, in our movies, and our TV shows, and that sort of thing. Uh, we see it in our perspective of history, Axis versus allies, Greeks versus Persians, you know, all that sort of stuff. And my guess is you, like my family, has your own debates about great powers. Who would win, you know, so-and-so versus so-and-so? When I was growing up in my family, it was who would win, a shark or a bear? And I am a little bit ashamed to admit that my family has continued this discussion literally for decades. Um, you know, what kind of bear, what kind of shark, on the land, on the water, right? I mean, it's so stupid, but this is what keeps us entertained when we don't have anything else to talk about. Um, we just kind of instinctively like a story about great powers uh, clashing and see who will win. And we want to align ourselves with the power that will come out on top. Um, and of course, today, we have a story about exactly that. We have a story of a clash of great powers. Um, and this is very similar to the text that we looked at last week in Exodus, um, where there was also a clash of great powers, Pharaoh versus Yahweh. And the midwives had to decide which power they would align themselves with. Um, and uh, there were risks and dangers, it seemed, on both sides. Um, so today's text, again, is about the same thing. Our story actually really begins in chapter 3, where we are told that Peter and John heal a man who has been lame his whole life. He's sitting outside the temple. He asks Peter and John for money. They don't have any, but they say, we'll give you what we have. And they heal him in the name of Jesus. Um, and there, when I was a kid, at least, there was a song about this. He went uh, laughing and leaping and praising God. Um, and Peter and John tell everyone that they did this by the power of Jesus, who has been raised from the dead. And we're told that the people see the healed man, they hear the witness to Jesus, and many of them begin to believe, and they begin to follow Jesus. And that's where our chapter opens up, chapter 4. Um, lots of people are listening. They're putting their trust in Jesus because of the miracle and the preaching. And the rulers of Israel hear about what's going on, and they want to put a stop to it. They arrest Peter and John, and then the next morning they bring them to a type of trial. And although the rulers of Israel can't deny the miracle that's taken place, they nonetheless order Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus. Now the disciples have to make a choice just like the midwives had to make a choice. Will they obey Jesus or will they obey someone else? And so this chapter, just like Exodus chapter one, is about um, God's people have, coming to a moment of decision. Who will we support? Who will we align ourselves with? Who will we trust and obey? That's the question that Peter and John are facing in Acts chapter four. So this chapter makes it absolutely as crystal clear as possible that that is what this chapter is about. This chapter is about a conflict between two claims to power and a moment of decision that faces the early church. Uh, the text draws our attention to this over and over again. Um, I want to point out uh, some specific ways in which the text makes it clear that that's what this passage is about. 
This is what we're supposed to take away from this passage, that there will be uh, earthly powers that rise up against God, and we, God's people, have to make decisions in those moments. So we first see this, or we see this very clearly, in the two Old Testament quotations that are in this passage. Um, And both of those quotations are from Psalms. The first one is when uh, Peter and John say to the rulers of Jerusalem and rulers of the Jews, um, the stone which you, the builders, rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118. And if you look at Psalm 118, you will discover that the entire psalm is about whether or not it's better to trust in God or to trust in human powers. That's what the whole psalm is about, which of course is why Peter and John are thinking about it in this moment. Verses 8 and 9, for example, of Psalm 118 say, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in human beings. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So Psalm 118 is about choosing to obey God instead of human powers. And Peter and John quote it in order to drive home the point that the rulers of Israel have chosen poorly up until this point. They chose to obey Rome rather than to recognize Jesus for who he was. They rejected the stone that has become Israel's chief cornerstone. In other words, the one who makes Israel what it is supposed to be, the one who holds Israel together and builds Israel up. They missed it. They rejected that person, that Jesus. So they chose to align themselves with human powers rather than with Yahweh's powers. So that first quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, uh, is very much, uh, if if you know what Psalm 118 says, is very much putting it in our face, this is the decision that we are faced with in this moment. Then later in the passage, um, the disciples amongst themselves, after the trial is over, quote Psalm 2. That's the the passage they quote about why do nations rage uh, against Yahweh. And uh, this psalm, once again, is entirely about earthly powers, kings and princes, who ally together with each other in order to try to resist the rule of God. Now, Psalm 2 makes it pretty clear this is a laughable attempt. Uh, Psalm 2 even says that God laughs at them um, because it's such this pitiful little attempt to have their own power and have their own way. But the disciples quote Psalm 2 at this moment um, as they're, they're thinking about what happened to Peter and John, and they're trying to make sense of it. And so they use the psalm to help themselves understand what is happening in this moment and how they should respond to that moment. The arrest and trial of Peter and John, they believe, is simply a fulfillment of this psalm. The psalmist said many, many hundreds of years before them, um, this is how nations will act against Yahweh, so be ready for it. And uh, Psalm 2 closes with the presentation of a choice. So this is how Psalm 2 ends, verses 11 and 12. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in your rebellion when his wrath ignites in an instant. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 says, people are going to band together to resist Yahweh, but here's what you should do in those moments. You should serve the Lord. He will take care of you. He will bless you. 
So when that moment comes, here's how you respond to it. So the disciples are quoting that psalm to themselves, not only to make sense of the moment, but remind themselves, here's what we do in moments like this. We serve the Lord, and he will bless us. He will take care of us. So both of the Old Testament quotes make it clear to us that's what this passage is about. This passage is about a clash of great powers and a moment of decision for God's people. But we have another thing that makes this very explicit to us as well, and that's that the trial of Peter and John is being very clearly compared to the trial of Jesus. Um, This comparison is made clear in several different ways. So, for example, we're told right up front and with absolute clearness that Annas and Caiaphas are overseeing the trial of Peter and John. These names should ring a bell for us, and they certainly ring a bell for Peter and John. Peter and John know who they are. They are the very same Jewish leaders who plotted the arrest and death of Jesus. They're the the guys that Jesus was taken in front of on the night of his arrest and uh, and questioned by them. Uh, They then sent him to Herod and Pilate and people like that, but it was Annas and Caiaphas who engineered the whole thing. Annas was the high priest formerly, Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and he is the high priest at this time that our story is taking place. So both of them uh, have held positions of great power in Israel, um, and both of them are the ones who engineered the trial of Jesus. Uh, Another way that this is being compared to Jesus' trial is that a similar event triggers both of them. Um, the the cause of Peter and John's arrest is very similar to the cause of Jesus' arrest. Annas and Caiaphas begin to plot the death of Jesus, interestingly enough, after he raises Lazarus from the dead. John 11 tells us that it's that event that makes them begin their plotting against Jesus. Jesus does a great miracle. Many people hear about it and begin to follow him. Annas and Caiaphas begin to plot his death. In the same way, Peter and John do a pretty incredible miracle. They heal this man who's been lame since the beginning of his life. They tell people it's because of Jesus. Many people begin to follow Jesus. Annas and Caiaphas step in. Stop. This is not going any further. So the events that trigger these two trials are essentially the same. We also know that we're supposed to compare this to Jesus' trial because when the disciples quote Psalm 2, they are saying that, that the, the actual fulfillment of Psalm 2 is Jesus' trial. They say, look, Annas and Caiaphas banded together with Herod and Pilate to kill God's anointed. That's pretty much literally word for word what Psalm 2 says is going to happen, minus the, the, explicit, the explicit names. Um, and so when the, when, the, when the disciples quote Psalm 2, they're thinking about the arrest and trial of Jesus. They're like, what happened to Jesus is happening to us now. So whatever Jesus did, that's what we have to do now. We have to follow Jesus in Jesus' footsteps because what's happened to him is now happening to us. So they're thinking about it in terms of Jesus' arrest and trial. So that's what we're supposed to do as well. Uh, We're supposed to think, if this happened to Jesus, then of course it can happen to us. And however Jesus handled it, that's how we should handle it as well. 
So if Jesus is in, the, is in the midst of this clash of great powers and has to make a decision, of course, we will also be in the midst of it. We will also have to make a decision. And of course, then that's exactly what the story is about. Peter and John are arrested. They're told, hey, you have to stop talking about Jesus. And they immediately recognize this as a moment of decision because the, the order given to them by Annas and Caiaphas is in direct opposition to the order given to them by Jesus right before he ascended into heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So you have two opposing orders. The disciples have to make a decision. They can't obey both of them. They have to choose which one they're going to obey. Uh, as Bob Dylan once famously said, you're going to have to serve somebody. You just have to choose who. So the disciples must make a decision between competing claims to ultimate authority. They have to choose who they will obey and who they will defy. And so, of course, they have these two possible options. And the text is really helpful, I think, because it shows us exactly what those two options look like. Um, we have the rulers of Israel, Annas, Caiaphas, and their group, who have chosen to obey the human powers. And we have Peter and John, who, of course, are going to choose to obey Jesus. So we can see what each choice looks like uh, laid out very clearly for us. So let's, let's take a look at that. Let's start with the rulers of Israel. I think that the question that is clearly being asked or, you know, the question that arises to the top when we read this text is why are the Jewish leaders opposed to Peter and John? Even Peter and John are, are kind of like, what is, what is your problem? They said, are you calling us to account because of this act of kindness or this good deed that we did? Because we healed somebody? Is that what this big ruckus is about? Um, because surely it can't be about that, right? Because we've just done a good thing that anybody should be happy about. And so the, the question is, why are they so opposed to uh, this act of kindness and to the preaching that follows? Well, and it's the preaching that follows, of course, that they're actually opposed to. The act of kindness creates an opportunity for the disciples to witness to Jesus Christ and to his power. That's the issue here. So to figure out why the, uh, the Jewish leaders are so opposed to this, we actually need to go back to John chapter 11, which is the, the chapter where they begin to plot Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A lot of people begin to believe in him because of it. And the rulers, and they're named Annas and Caiaphas, the exact same rulers and their little mob, uh, they have a conversation in John 11. And this is what they say about Jesus. Here is this man, Jesus, performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. John eleven forty eight. If we let Jesus continue, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. That's why they begin to plot against Jesus. It's at this point that Caiaphas famously says that it's better for one man to die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish. Um, he is prophesying, but he doesn't really understand his own prophecy. But he's saying, look, it's, if we don't get rid of Jesus, Rome's going to get rid of us. So it's better that Jesus die than that the whole nation perish. And this is a legitimate threat. Rome, Rome, Rome will come and crush them if, if they don't get rid of people like Jesus, and they know it. Um, and so they're like, let's deal with Jesus, and then, we, and then Rome will, will leave us alone, essentially. 
So they're afraid of losing their place and their nation. In other words, they've made a deal with Rome. They've made a bargain with Rome. They basically said to Rome, we acknowledge your authority um, and we'll obey it if you promise to kind of let us have our own little place and not interfere in it. We'll support you if you support us. And that's exactly how it worked. As a matter of fact, Annas and Caiaphas were both appointed to be high priests by Roman governors. They weren't chosen by the Israelites. They were appointed by people like Pontius Pilate. Uh, They held their power at the discretion of Rome, and they knew it. So they had shifted their trust from Yahweh to Rome. Rome has become the source of their position and power. So they fear Rome. They don't fear God. And they believe that if they don't support Rome, they will be destroyed by Rome. And they've come, so they've come to believe that Rome is the ultimate power in the world. They probably actually think they're doing what's best for Israel. Look, like we take these actions and we keep our people safe. So they've convinced themselves that serving Rome is actually a good way to serve Yahweh and to serve Israel. They've forgotten that the one who protects Israel is Yahweh, not some earthly power. They have forgotten the defiance of the midwives who were blessed by Yahweh rather than destroyed by Pharaoh. They've forgotten their own history. They think that their lives, their positions, their power, all depend on Rome. Therefore, Rome must not only be obeyed, Rome actually needs to be strengthened. It's their job to prop Rome up and make Rome as strong as possible. So that's why they plotted to kill Jesus, and of course that's why they're trying to stop Peter and John now. It's the same reason. Their bargain with Rome requires them to shut down any rival claim to power. And that's why they asked the disciples at the beginning, by what power or in whose name did you do this thing? Depending on who they name, that will will shape the trial that comes after that. So the ability to heal and the ability to save is a challenge to Rome because Rome's power, like Pharaoh's, by the way, lies in its ability to kill. Rome says, if you don't do what I tell you, we'll kill you. That's where Rome's power lies. So if someone comes along who can raise the dead, that's a, that nullifies Rome's threats, right? Because someone has a power to do the thing, to reverse the thing that Rome, Rome's power rests on. Rome says, I'll kill you. And Jesus says, I'll raise you from the dead. Rome's threat has been neutralized. So Rome's power has been lost. And so, um, and so the Pharisees recognize, the Jewish leaders recognize Jesus and the disciples as a threat to Rome. And they have decided to serve Rome. So they do what Rome has taught them to do. They issue their own threats. They are good sons of Rome. On the other hand, we have Peter and John. Peter and John do see what's going on. They recognize that there is a conflict of powers, and they see these opposing claims. And so um, they see that they are faced with a decision. They can't just pretend that serving Rome and serving Yahweh are the same thing. They recognize that obeying one means defying the other one. There's no getting out of that. So the only choice is which one they will obey. Uh, And they even try to help the Jewish leaders see this. They say it as plainly as they can. They say, whether it is better for us to obey God or you, you be the judge. They put it in as plain a language as possible. They say to Annas and Caiaphas, it's not too late to change who you're supporting. You can come back to Yahweh. You can stop serving Rome. 
You want to act like judges? Okay. The question isn't what to do with us. The question is, who are you going to obey, God or human powers? If the midwives in Exodus 1 had acted like Annas and Caiaphas, they would have done what Pharaoh asked, reasoning that you kill a few babies and the rest of Israel gets, uh, is kept safe. That's the Annas and Caiaphas way of doing things. And so Peter and John, but of course that's not what the midwives did, and Peter and John are trying to help Annas and Caiaphas be more like the midwives in this moment. Um, but Annas and Caiaphas are not willing. They are not able. Uh, so the disciples, the disciples, by their own actions, set an example of what the alternative is to obeying Rome. The alternative is to trust Jesus instead of Rome. To say, look, here's the evidence right before us. The man who was healed in the name of Jesus is standing right there. Nobody can deny it. Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead. Jesus is the one who can heal the lame. There is no other name in heaven above or earth below by which we can be saved. It's just Jesus. So that's the one we're going to serve. We're going to follow Jesus and do what Jesus has asked us to do. So they defy the human authorities. They defy Annas and Caiaphas, and as a result, of course, they're really defying Rome. But it's worth taking a moment here to, be, to clarify what Christian defiance is. Um, I think Christian defiance, good Christian defiance, is really better characterized as obedience to Jesus, not defiance of earthly powers. The disciples do not have an agenda to overthrow Rome or to start a rebellion or something like that. They're not like, oh, here's our opportunity to get this rebellion going that we've been looking to do. No, they're just out to follow Jesus. And if that means that they have to occasionally defy Rome, okay, so be it. But that's not their agenda. Their agenda is to be witnesses to Jesus Christ through word and sign. They're very clear on that. If they have to defy Rome in order to do what Jesus has asked them to do, okay. But I want to be clear, they don't have an agenda of defiance or rebellion. They have an agenda of obedience. Uh, they're going to follow Jesus no matter what. The governments can get in the way and get defied, or they can not get in the way and not get defied. The disciples kind of don't care, to be honest. They're just doing their thing, and they're going to do it one way or the other. They're not going to be distracted by any government, good or bad, helpful or not helpful, supportive or unsupportive. So they are intent on obeying Jesus. I also want to pause here and make it clear that both sides are seeking power. Power is not a bad thing. The question is, what kind of power? Whose power? Both sides are looking and trying to figure out who is the great power here. Each group aligns itself with what it believes is the greater power, and each power seeks to prove itself through signs. The sign of Rome's power is the ability to kill anyone who stands against it. That's why they crucified Jesus. It's a sign of their power. The sign of Jesus' power is the ability to conquer death and to share that victory with others. So on Rome's side, we have the sign of death. On Jesus' side, we have the sign of resurrection. Those are the signs of the powers that are in conflict with each other. And of course, when I say it, it seems so obvious that we should pick Jesus. Jesus is the power we should align ourselves with. Yes, I guess in some ways it is obvious. At the same time, I think it's worth giving 
a little sympathy to Annas and Caiaphas uh, and those like them, that they are choosing Rome for a reason. They're not just being stupid or dumb or rebellious themselves. Why is an alliance with Rome so tempting? Well, I think there's more than one reason for this, but I think at least one of those reasons is that Rome and its power feels so immediate. The threat feels very immediate. They see Rome killing and hurting people every single day. But also the promise feels very immediate. If Rome supports us, we can exercise power in our place, in our nation, right? That's what they're trying to preserve, our place and our nation. And so there's this immediateness to the power of Rome that they feel very strongly and they're very, very tempted by. And they're not the only ones. It's the first temptation just all over again. Do this and you'll have the same power as God. You'll be like God. You won't have to answer to anyone else. You'll have your own power. That's what Rome is offering them. Rome is saying you'll have your own power. Whereas with God, God says, no, it's my power and I'll give it to you if I want, and I'll withhold it sometimes if I want. Um, And so when we put our trust in God, we also trust that he holds the power, and he'll use it when and if he so chooses. And we can infer from the disciples' prayer meeting after they are released that this temptation to align ourselves with Rome is real for them as well. Because when they pray, they ask God to make them bold in their obedience to Jesus. Which I can only infer from that that they feel some vulnerability to that temptation. They feel some vulnerability to being afraid of Rome and wanting to do what Rome tells them because of the threats Rome issues against them. It wasn't very long before that Peter denied Jesus three times because why? He's afraid of Rome. Now, they still feel that temptation, and so they say, God, protect us from that. Give us boldness. Make us invulnerable to the temptations that Rome offers, because they are real, and they are strong. And of course, God responds to this prayer. Uh, God responds with power. The whole place they're in shakes. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're able to obey Jesus and defy the Jewish leaders Boldly, we're told. They ask for power and they get it. But it's not a power that rests in themselves. It's a power that rests in God. They never control it, but they really do receive it and they really do live and speak out of it. So power isn't a bad thing. It's whose power that matters and how that power operates that matters. So, you know, we've come to the question, what is, we've come to the time where we ask the question, what does this mean for us? And I think that a lot of American Christians might be tempted to read this story and not feel like it applies directly to us because we live in a place where we have uh, what's commonly called religious freedom. We might be tempted to think that this passage is clearly relevant to Christians who live in places like China or Iran. Like, whew. Man, those Iranian Christians, they, I bet they get a lot out of this. I mean, they're every day being told, don't evangelize or we'll kill you. Like, clearly, this is a passage meant for folks like that. Thankfully, we can pray for our brothers and sisters in, in countries like that, but we, thank goodness, we don't have to make choices like that right now. Um, I think that's the very temptation offered to the church by America. 
the temptation to believe that we are who we are as the church because America lets us be that thing. America gives us freedom. America makes the church possible in this country. So we begin subtly, and then quite honestly, not so subtly, to put our trust in America instead of in Jesus. And we begin to think that it's our job as Christians to protect and preserve America. Because then, the trickle-down effect, right? If we protect America, then America will protect us. You support us, we support you. And you will see many, many examples of this next Sunday. Because next Sunday is the Sunday before the 4th of July. You will see many, many examples of this in the year to come because we're coming up on a presidential election year. America wants your support. America wants to make a deal with you and with me, with the church. The people, the systems, the machines of power in this country know that this is the temptation the American church faces. They're not stupid. So they're going to say things like, and I'm quoting directly from a politician, if you vote for me, Christianity will have power. If I'm there, you will have plenty of power and you won't need anybody else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. That's what politicians say to us, the church. And we are vulnerable to the deal that they are offering us. We think, yeah, if we have power, that would be good. Then we can make things good for us and for other people. Then we can preserve our place and our nation. So we are vulnerable to this temptation. We are vulnerable to being like Annas and Caiaphas. But I, I think we must decide now to be like Peter and John. We must remember that it is not our job, it is not even our concern to preserve this place or this nation. It is not our concern to preserve this nation. Our job is to witness to Jesus Christ through word and sign. This is the task given to us by Jesus Christ, and we are empowered for it by the Holy Spirit. When the midwives obeyed Yahweh, Israel grew. When the disciples obeyed Jesus, the church grew. The fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran. The church does not need any human government or any human power to do what it is called to do. And the temptation here is much more subtle than in a place like Iran, but it is nonetheless equally dangerous perhaps more so. I recently read an article of a family, a Christian family from Iran who escaped and came to America, and they moved back to Iran after a couple years in America because they said, whoa, the temptations here are just too much for us. Um, and they were like, we like it better in Iran where we, where we know where we stand. Uh, they said that in America they felt sleepy because it was easy to rest in all the promises America makes. And so they, they moved back to Iran. They'd rather be in a place where the government threatens to kill them than in a place where the, where the government wants to make a deal with them. 
Uh, the church does not need any human government to be and do what it is supposed to be and do. And so therefore, no human government, no human power has a right to ask for our primary allegiance or support. If and when they do ask for it, and believe me, they will. In the next 18 months, they will ask for it. If and when they ask for it, we say no. If and when they either make promises or threats, and I guarantee they'll make both in the next few months. If and when they make promises or threats, we must recognize those as idolatrous claims to power. They are trying to say they have a power that only belongs to Jesus. That's idolatry. We have to say no to it. When Christians defy human powers and governments, they do so in order to obey the commands of Jesus, not, again, out of some principle of rebellion or defiance. And the command of Jesus is this, that we witness to his death and resurrection through word and sign. That is our task. So, as we set our minds to this task, let's pray the same prayer the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4. I think if it was a good enough prayer for them, it's certainly a good enough prayer for us. So, let's pray as the disciples prayed. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in Jerusalem to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants, enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen.